Hey, this is Mark. Following a slow start to the year, Big Pharma struck some notable M&A deals in the second quarter. That included Pfizer's $11.6 billion deal for a portion of Biohaven Pharmaceuticals, Bristol-Myers Squibb's $4 billion purchase of Turning Point Therapeutics, and GSK's $3.3 billion play for Affinivax. While the value and volume of deals have been down overall, the industry is sitting on a tremendous amount of capital, thanks to their efforts to stem the pandemic, among other reasons. And research suggests that these acquisitions may be a sign of things to come. This week on the podcast, is this the beginning of a return to M&A in the pharma industry for the second half? I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing and media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. Here with me is Subin Baral, Global Life Sciences Deals Leader for EY, and we're going to have a discussion on his research-based predictions on what we can expect for pharma deal-making in the second half of 2022. Subin, how are you? And thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let's just start out by having you uh, tell us what do the trends suggest with regard to uh, deal making. So, Mark, thanks. Uh, you know, as we all know, it, it had been a first quarter of very slow M and A activity. Um, noticeably, there is an uptick in Q two. The overall value has gone up by fifty six percent, and volume has gone up by seventeen percent compared to Q one. And we look, as we look at the trend, a lot of them are driv- driven by the large big pharma deals, right? And you, you mentioned uh, Pfizer's Biohaven deal, BMS Turning Point deals. When you look at the overall, the M&A spending, 43% of the M&A spending are coming from the biopharma company, big biopharma companies compared to the 40% in Q1. As we look at it here, and when we call it the deals that are being made by Pfizer and, and BMS and, and GSK, we expect this, this trend to continue in a what we call it a bolt-on, right? If you look at the deal value and volume, over 80% of these deals, both in value and volumes, are bolt-on related. So we, we expect this to continue from a deal type perspective. Uh, we also would expect the second half to be a very active year from a deal-making perspective for the biopharma companies. Sure. So that uptick that you mentioned is suggestive that the industry is prepared to unleash some of their accumulated uh, firepower, as EY puts it, on some of these deals. Before we get to uh, how much capital they're sitting on to, to fund deals, talk a little bit, if you would, about what some of the trends that are driving the industry to, to want to you know, source external innovation? So if you look at what we define uh, a growth gap, and the growth gap is uh, pretty much the big pharma companies are experiencing a patent cliff between 24 and 26. That is going to put a tremendous pressure on big pharma companies to meet those revenue expectations. And if you look at the current R&D pipeline, it seems to suggest that they have to access new innovation to close the growth gap. So that in itself is an impetus for um, uh, uh, accessing these new technologies and so forth, right? So that, that's, a, that's one area to look at. Then when you look at some of the areas such as um, the current stock market 
correction in the in the biopharma world that is also now putting a lot of the weight of the big pharma on the valuation perspective so the correction have put a cut the price tag on the smaller biotech life sciences companies also if you look at the access to ipo windows so in the past we had multiple paths for access to capital for a lot of the smaller life sciences companies to either go public go to spac to raise these funds those those avenues are are collapsing so that is that is creating a lot more bottleneck in the in the process so that so that the companies would start having to go the alternate route and the last one that we talk about is the record level of firepower that you touched on um, obviously the biopharma companies are sitting on over 1.2 trillion dollars of firepower and when we define in our firepower report uh, which we released after JP Morgan in, in January of 2022, it is a company's ability to do deals, uh, which would include inputs like cash, uh, market market cap, debt, um, and so so forth to really look at how much how much can they spend in deal making. Sure. So so the fundamentals look really strong. You know, is what you're suggesting for an active second half. Um, and speaking of the firepower of the industry, um, I know it's not a one-dimensional figure like uh, cash only, but can you elaborate a little bit on what's their capacity to, to fund these kinds of transactions? Yeah, as, we, as, we, as I mentioned, firepower has multiple inputs to it, right? It's cash, it's market cap, it's debt um, based on the balance sheet to be able to fund for certain acquisitions. So, you know, with the 1.2 trillion dollars of firepower being available, uh, there is enough capital in the market for the biopharma companies to do deals. The question is not about the the whether they have the finances or the stock market crash. The question is about quality of these assets. You know, more we talk to our clients in in the industry as a whole, they are increasingly focused on how do I de-risk. Uh, my my acquisitions, my deals, and you know while they while they continue to look at phase two onwards or marketed product type of deal, uh, they are increasingly excited about continued alliance with the early stage companies in the in the process to access early for the new innovations that uh, that they they need to get into. Uh, what it does is it puts a lot of onus back into the the sellers. Or the target companies to really have robust data uh, and robust trial to be able to ensure that they, they they have a good track record to prove it when that time comes when these acquisitions um, are being contemplated. Because if you look at even Pfizer's acquisition of BioHaven, Pfizer's had already some collaboration and alliance and some stakes in the BioHaven um, as well, right? So it gave them a lot of comfort to be able to. Uh, acquire because they saw the quality and the prospect in the migraine and in the CNS sort of therapeutic area that is uh, fairly, fairly, there is a fairly um, high unmet need there. So we would expect this to continue, that alliance will continue, that, that will continue to be a feeder for a access to new innovations uh, for the big, pharma, big biopharma company for at the earlier stage. But you know, M and A are largely done at the phase two onwards or marketed product to de-risk some of those downside. 
Sure, sure. And bring up a great point, Subin, in, in terms of alliances. Historically, being a way that pharma has sought to de-risk uh, M&A, you know, we saw that with years ago, you know, when, when Roche brought the uh, portion of Genentech that it didn't already own, uh, or, you know, Sanofi and Genzyme, you know, got together um, after, um, you know, a long alliance. And we saw that in, in the Biohaven-Pfizer deal where they had a pre-existing alliance around uh, marketing of, of, the, of migraine, the migraine drug, the CGRP drug, and, uh, and then they bought the remainder of the company that they didn't already own, although they left some of it under, under the Biohaven umbrella. But, uh, you know, let's switch gears for a second. And, you know, you, you talked about some of the um, factors uh, that are pushing uh, companies uh, into uh, considering M&A more, more, more closely, like the SPAC market closing up a bit. Um, but there are some things that are, you know, potentially keeping them on the sidelines as well. You know, for instance, do you, do you think that biopharma is kind of staying put terms of M&A until prices drop further? Yeah, I'm not, uh, I, I don't know if prices drop further, but I think there clearly is a gap be- in valuation between the seller and the buyer. Uh, in, our, in our view, the seller's expectation have not yet shifted in line with the change in market valuation overall. Uh, we expect that that will take a little time to normalize uh, so, so, the, so there is not a a larger gap between the buyer and the seller. I think that probably is a bigger, um, bigger sort of um, area that we we need to kind of co- closely watch. But the valuation has has really dropped. Now, the question obviously is, if you think about the high quality assets, and this is where it keeps coming back to, high quality assets tend to hold the value. Right? And biopharma companies are ready to spend the money for those high-quality assets. And we've seen that in, in many of these deals of Pfizer, Biohaven, you mentioned, uh, BMS Turning Point, you mentioned, and, and also uh, GSK's um, acquisition of Sierra Oncology. So, you know, depending on the therapeutic area and, and the target company and how quality sort of data and the business strategy that they have tend to drive the value. But, you know, generally speaking, I think the sellers would have to catch up to the reality of the market um, market conditions changing from what what they were used to maybe perhaps earlier part of 2021. Certainly, sure. And now you, you mentioned some of the deals that you're you're going to be keeping your eye on uh, in terms of sizing. Uh, bolt-on acquisitions uh, continue to be a driver of deal types. I believe the bolt-on. Um, well, let's hear how you at EY define a bolt-on acquisition and you know, talk about, if you would, or elaborate on the kinds of deals that we might be seeing uh, in the second half. Sure. Um, so two things, right? When we talk about mega deals, uh, we for biopharma company, any deal that are over any deals that are over forty billion, we consider a mega mega deal for biopharma, and ten billion for medtech. Uh, Bolton is small to medium-sized deal, less than 25% of, buy, uh, of buyer's market cap. So, you know, when we look at, when we look at what is the, the horizon, uh, the future holds for the M&A type, um, we have this saying where we never say never to the transformative deal, which is clear that the large mega mergers, uh, there's enough, um, enough money and enough proposition out there to be able to run those but from our perspective the the bolt-on and alliance will continue to dominate 
the deal making in the second half. Um, you know, um, then then obviously, and as you as you have seen with with the with the firepower being available and the growth gap needing to be filled, there is a, a very strong fundamentals um, that in the sector that will that that it, that is encouraging for us to to expect a very active second half. Mm-hmm. Uh, what technologies do you think will be uh, hot or, or ripe for M and A? Can you kind of address some of the, the different platform plays uh, that uh, may be ripe for takeover? So that hasn't really changed. When we really, if you if you look at our firepower report that we issued earlier this year, you know, cell and gene therapy, a protein degradation, uh, these are the top innovative technology areas. Uh, mRNA, any platforms are, are becoming a big, big areas of investment. Uh, having said that, we are still seeing a lot of deals that are being done in the oncology therapeutic area. I mean, be, just because of the size of the market and the unmet need is so big, uh, companies tend to be be focused in that area. I mean, that 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 is clearly to be said in in the GSK and BMS's deal, both in the oncology space. Um, so. We, we expect the oncology space continue to be very active, but from a new innovation and modalities perspective, cell and gene therapy, mRNA, uh, protein degradation are some of those key areas that um, companies would look to get access to new new revenue streams. Sure, sure. And what about on the med tech side? Uh, that was biopharma, but I'd love to hear your predictions in terms of med device and, and diagnostics. So... Medtech is a slightly different story. I mean, when you think about Medtech, I mean, they they continue to struggle from a deal trend perspective. It really hasn't gotten any any better from the Q1. Obviously, the stock market um, has not crashed on Medtech as as it has in the biopharma side. So that that is causing a lot of a uh, lot of challenges for them. Uh, you know, I. Th- we, we, would, we would expect a lot of medtech to sit on the sideline. Uh, we'd expect a lot of these alliances continue to be a, a, a access into the market for medtech. Um, you know, so th- that probably would be the similar story. Uh, only promising side on the biopharma is that there are fundamental drivers that continue to push uh, the opportunity a little bit more bullishly in biopharma than compared to medtech. Obviously, it's facing a lot of FX headwinds. Uh, uh, you know, and and staffing shortages and supply chain issues and so forth. That is also creating a lot of headwinds in the medtech space compared to the biopharma mm-hmm. from a fundamental driver's perspective. Okay. okay. Um, now, you mentioned earlier in the discussion the loss of uh, exclusivity, creating a revenue gap uh, over the next uh, several years uh, as we as we, the industry moves to the 2020s. Uh, do you think that the, the pipeline, is substantial enough to make up for that uh, revenue shortfall? We don't think so. <laughs> that that is the that is the that is why one of our our research seems to suggest that what we call a growth gap, which is you know as the patent patent cliff the LOE looms, uh, lo- leading biopharma companies with their pipeline current pipeline are not going to be able to fulfill the growth gap and the growth in the market uh, in itself so so they are they are going to continuously have to rely on external access to these innovations so that is one of a fundamental driver that we think 
would would um, would allow a lot of deal activities uh, to to come in the second half leading into next year. Okay, well, what do you think is the biggest factor that could lead to a big increase in, in deal volume amongst the five reasons that I believe you've kind of gone over today? I think the two two of the largest factor is you know the. Growth gaps is what I would call the biggest one because you know the 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 revenue challenges are continue to be there, uh, but also if you think about the record level of firepower, right? Once you sit on that level of firepower, you have to make use of those firepower. Uh, I think those are the two two areas that continues to to push the deal making side. Um, I think the the new modalities and access to new modalities. I mean, these are the new areas that the the companies would have to go into to bridge the gap the, between uh, the market expectations and and the patent cliff impact. I think if you look at those three, I mean, I know we talked about the five, but those three area in com- combination, that in itself in, it seems to suggest that there will be a splur of activity um, in the second half and the year year to come. Sure. Okay. Were there any uh, surprises in, in your research uh, in terms of uh, what it suggests in terms of uh, deal making to come? Two things I would I would highlight. One was if you look at the alliance in the second quarter, the alliance seems to drop in the second quarter. Now, one quarter doesn't really make the trend. Uh, we are watching alliance as um, a uh, this data point very closely. Because we, we, we seem to believe that Alliance would continue to be a, a vehicle to early access to innovation. But, th- you know, that is why um, having a drop in Q2 was a, a, a sign that we wanted to watch closely to see if this is indicating a shift towards M&A and not, not Alliance. Um, I mean, again, I, I'll repeat the one quarter doesn't really make the trend. So we are continuing to watch this. So that was a slightly bit of a surprise to us. Um, and and a little bit of activities. We are expecting a little bit more activity in Q2. Um, I think, um, again, for the reasons that we mentioned, I think there are companies uh, perhaps sitting on the sideline a little bit just because the seller's expectation has to come in line with the market. Those are the two um, watchouts for us in the second quarter, which we, we would um, think Q3 onwards will start lot of leveling off on those activities. To what extent did alliances change in terms of volume and value uh, last quarter? Even even quarter on quarter, if you look at it, it 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 was down um, in volume from sixty four to forty four, and in value forty eight to ten billion. Which seems to suggest, and again, one tre- one quarter doesn't make the trend, but it is uh, counterintuitive to see the alliance go down. So that is also we're watching to see if this is a trigger for more M&A. Mm, okay. So sort of uh, counterintuitive that the number of alliances uh, would, would go down um, so that perhaps uh, is another factor um, behind why you think that uh, actual M&A is going to pick up second half. Exactly. Okay. Interesting. Exactly. Okay. Um, anything else you'd like to mention, Subin? No, I think, uh, look, this is, this is great. Thank you. Thank you for... Um, making time with us to to have us share our perspective we we do expect as as i said before while the headwinds are there from a macroeconomics and geopolitical perspective uh, i think the industry fundamentals 
are very strong for us to um, suggest that it's going to be a very active second half of deal making in the biopharma industry. Great. Well, it was a fascinating discussion. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Mark. That's it for this week. If you like this episode, please give it a thumbs up. Better yet, subscribe on your podcasting platform of choice and help others discover the show. The MMNM Podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Deborah Stahl, Bradley Weems, and Gordon Failer. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sohn. We're out every week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.